but we should be just as vigilant. Now, third, I think all this means, therefore, that we should double down on our prayer and outreach efforts. The reason that God placed Israel in the land was so that they might be a light to the Gentiles who were living in darkness, right? A beacon of hope for a broken world. The promise of Abraham was that through him all the nations of the world will be blessed a mission that Jesus made explicit and applied to us in the Great Commission. Now, not everyone is called to go. Not everyone is called to, to stand up and debate, as we see people do on YouTube and everything else. But we can all easily be in prayer for this monumental task, praying against the deceptive work of Satan, praying against the blindness that has consumed so many, praying for those missionaries who are, are living and serving and working and ministering on the front lines, praying for them to have boldness and courage, praying for spiritual protection for them as they minister in physically and spiritually dangerous contexts. And so in the end, whatever you make of, of God's command to drive out the Canaanites, his call on your heart personally is absolute and unwavering. And the threat posed by idolatry and false religions continues to this day. So what steps are you going to take to maintain a, a healthy separation, even as you follow God's call and command to take the gospel out into the world to all who need to hear it? So if the first point is that you're to separate yourself from false religions, the second is that you are chosen by God. The second point out of this text in Deuteronomy 7 is that you are chosen by God and should obey Him as such. I'm guessing that uh, uh, most of you have seen the TV show America's Got Talent. Familiar with that at all? Anyone? It's okay. <laughs> Talking being in the world and not out of the world. I've seen America's Got Talent. There we go. You're just going to own it. And one of the, uh, the best parts of the show, if you've seen it, right, the part that everyone looks forward to is when the judges encounter an act that's so mind-blowingly amazing, what do they do? They get up there and they hit the golden buzzer, right? And, and the crowd goes crazy and the, whoever's on stage just bursts into tears and there's, there's, everything goes in slow motion on the YouTube replays, right? And, and the music and then all this like golden glitter comes down from the, from the ceiling. I mean, it... I don't care how jaded you are about reality TV. This is just like a heartwarming moment. It all, like I'm tearing up like when I watch these. I love it. And part of me wishes we could sort of recreate that experience every time someone comes to faith in Christ, right? Like we should buy like a confetti cannon or something for, for our next baptism service. Yeah, and I'm only half joking because... <laughs> Look, for all the hoopla on, on America's Got Talent, what does that golden buzzer get you? It, you don't even win the show, <laughs> right? It just gets you to the next round of the competition. You could still go home empty-handed. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you cross that line from spiritual death into spiritual life, you receive all the riches of heaven, right? Angels rejoicing over one sinner who repents. It is a really, really big deal. The biggest decision you will ever make in your entire life 
impacting your existence for eternity. And I say all this because Moses paints a similar picture for us of the glories of our salvation and, and our chosen status as the people of God in the heart of chapter 7. So again, I can't read that whole section here, but if you look in your Bible starting in verse 6, he says, For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Holy, chosen, treasured possession, loved, redeemed. God, Moses says, look, God loves you. And this is where the Americans Got Talent illustration completely falls to pieces. Because the people of Israel, they have no talent whatsoever. That's what Moses is saying here. It's like, you've got no talent. Unless being stiff-necked counts as a talent. <laughs> like, yeah, we got that one nailed. Moses, uh, Moses is super clear. God's election of Israel has nothing to do with any merit on their behalf. They certainly didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. A more appropriate illustration, right, would be the judges hitting the golden buzzer for some scrawny, talentless, disinterested kid sitting in the back row, scrolling mindlessly through his phone, right? Golden buzzer for that kid back there. That captures something more of the astonishing nature of God's gracious election of Israel. I mean, they were nothing, they're trapped in, in Egypt, powerless, hopeless, useless, until God rescued them in keeping with the oath that he swore to their fathers, as Moses says in, in verse 8. It's an image that, that Paul is, is later going to draw from heavily in his opening chapter to the Ephesians, right? Speaking of God's election of the saints for salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the same image uh, we heard a moment ago from Peter in his letter. Right? Followers of Christ and now a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's like Peter's just piling on these images trying to emphasize how significant their election is. But with their election, and with their election comes phenomenal blessing, Right? assuming they remain in the covenant. So look at verse 9. He says, uh, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Assuming that the people remain faithful to the covenant and the blessings of God are all theirs to enjoy. They'll have abundant grain, abundant wine, abundant oil. Their flocks will increase in number. They'll be blessed above all the peoples of the earth. I'll note that, that none of this is based on, on the strength of their faith, 
It's not based on the intensity or the fervency of their prayers. God's blessing flows directly from his character and his commitment to the covenant that he's already made with his people. But assuming they remain faithful, then the associated blessings will then uh, flow freely. And so it's here that we begin to catch a, a little glimpse of some kind of tentative return to Eden. It's as if God is just beginning to tease at his plan to undo some of the pain and the suffering and the struggle of the curse of Genesis 3, right? Instead of thorns and thistles and sweat and toil, they're going to have food in abundance, almost to excess. And it's in in this image that we can now begin to see why it would be so important to drive out every last hint of Canaanite sin from the land. Because sin is what drove Adam and Eve from the garden, right? And so for the people to then make a triumphant return, sin has to be completely eradicated from their past. Like I said at the beginning, God's plan is is to take his special people and put them in in a special place for a special purpose. Sadly, of course, this grand entry will turn out to be historically little more than a a pathetic, half-hearted effort from the Israelites. The books of Joshua and Judges chronicle the people's failure to drive out the nations. Their failure to resist idolatry. Their failure to obey God's commands. Sin's grip turns out to be just too powerful. And thus the conquest of Canaan becomes a reminder. We can't get back into God's presence under our own strength and power. Roughly paraphrasing the Chronicles of Narnia, it would take a much deeper magic to undo that curse. Someone who could keep the law perfectly. Someone who could bear the punishment completely. Someone who could enter into God's presence boldly and finally. And now we have the blessing of living on the other side of that great sacrifice. Right? Of experiencing the first fruits of God's blessings in Christ. Of catching a tiny glimpse of the glories to come, right? We get to drink of the living water and look ahead to the the heavenly promised land where we will one day finally experience true and lasting rest in his presence. But until that day, there is work to do, right? Chosen people have to in turn make a choice. Will we take the path of obedience that leads to blessing or the path of selfish, self-centeredness and rebellion that leads to death? Because every moment you really do have a choice to either walk with God or walk with sin. Every conversation, every decision, every thought, every inkling of your heart Every experience, however mundane, can become an opportunity to either honor and glorify God or to honor and glorify ourselves, our own desires, our own ends. And the question implied by our text then is, is which will you choose? 
Well, as we move on in our text, uh, our, our final point today is a word of encouragement for God's people. A promise of, of deliverance and protection in the face of difficult and trying circumstances. In other words, Moses says at the end of this chapter, fear not, for God is with you. Fear not, for God is with you. Look at verse 17. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I am. Uh, how, uh, uh, if, if you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? Moses begins with a, a, a question he imagines the people asking. Right? And it's a question that's actually plagued the people for 40 years. This is not a new question for them. How can we possibly defeat enemies who are bigger, stronger, tougher, mightier than we are? What hope do we possibly have against such enemies? But note how Moses replies. I love this. He doesn't minimize it or downplay it. He doesn't say, oh, don't be so silly. It's not that bad. They're not that big. It's not that big of a task. You'll be fine, right? In fact, he never minimizes it. There are Indeed, right here in the text, he says, you're facing nations mightier, stronger, and more numerous than you are. That is the plain facts. But, he says, that's not the end of the story, because you're not facing this battle alone. Moses simply tells them, don't be afraid. Why? Because their not-so-secret weapon is the ongoing presence of the Lord himself walking with them. And although the people might feel weak and inferior, God would easily defeat all their enemies, every last one. I love verse 21. Moses says, you shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. How many times have you heard Moses preach this exact same message over and over again. It feels like we're hearing this every single week, right? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Hey, don't forget, do not be afraid. Why does he keep repeating this? Because anxiety and fear and panic are constantly threatening to overwhelm the people and derail God's plans. And the solution then, according to Moses, is not to minimize the dangers or not to deny the reality of the situation, but to broaden their perspective. To look back. He said, look back and, and remember all the ways that God has provided and blessed and helped you in the past. And use that as a ground for your confidence in his ability to continue to act in the future. As we, we wrap this up, I want to close this by, by putting this whole uh, encouragement to not be afraid in more concrete terms. For us, right here in our church, living in Illinois, according to, to the data I found online, Illinois has currently more people moving out of the state than moving in. You all know this, right? More people moving out of the state than moving in. Now, this is a free country, there's legitimate reasons to move, work, family, money, even weather might be a motivator for some people. But I'm starting to wonder if we've got this all backwards, that instead of Christians fleeing the state, 
we should be encouraging more Christians to stay here in the state, in Illinois. I can guess what some of you may be thinking, but Jonathan, the taxes, the corruption, it's too much. Look, I hear you. I own a house. The property taxes are completely insane. Inflation is only getting worse. There's a recession looming. The government seems completely incapable of stopping any of this. But Jesus says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear, for if God takes care of the birds of the air, how much more does he care for you? In fact, it's the Gentiles who frantically seek after all these other things, right? Because that's all they have to put their hope in. But Jesus tells his people to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. So I have to ask, is your trust in your own personal financial planning or in God? Look, you may be able to control how much tax you pay, but will moving to another state somehow magically guarantee material blessing and financial provision? Didn't we just read in Deuteronomy 7 that God is the one who provides the blessings, not the state that you live in? But Jonathan, uh, the progressive policies in Illinois, they're getting out of control. Again, I agree. No argument from me there. And I often feel powerless to do anything about it. I mean, boycotts, petitions, protests, they all feel like a drop in the bucket when the deck seems so heavily stacked against us. Our enemies seem to be consistently better funded, better equipped, better able to strong-arm their policies and agendas into place. But did we not just read in Deuteronomy 7 that God is the one who will drive out our enemies, especially those who are bigger and mightier and stronger and more numerous than we are, right? 2 Chronicles 20, the battle is not yours but God's especially for believers filled with the Holy Spirit, strengthened, equipped, empowered by God. Was any battle ever won by fleeing? Have we lost all confidence in God's ability to act? But Jonathan, look, I read a book saying that the only way Christianity will survive is for us to huddle up in little isolated communities where we can preserve our culture intact, separated completely from the world. Oh, you have a book. That's nice. I have a book. And when I read this book, it tells me that God has established his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. This... This book tells me that God is establishing his kingdom here on earth and nothing and no one can stand against him. This book tells me that God will ultimately win every single battle, whatever short-term gains wickedness and sin and evil may make. This book tells me that the outcome of this war has already been decided and God wins. The question is, do we want to be like, like Abraham, interceding for the, the city, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, or more like, like Jonah, running away in the opposite direction? Because there is vital work that has to be done right here in Illinois. 
Just last week, a local church hosted a, a prayer meeting that Michael and I went to for, for local pastors, and we met with Kurt Wiggins, who's the president of Caring Network Illinois, and it was sobering. Over the last few months, Illinois has positioned itself as a growing abortion destination here in the Midwest. In fact, Kurt was telling us that the already large number of abortions in Illinois is most likely going to double rapidly. There is, without a doubt, a darkness creeping slowly over the land right now, and it's settling right here in Illinois, laying down roots, burying its dirty tentacles in our soil and infecting our people. We may not see that every day, but it's a lingering demonic presence that is not going to leave. So I don't, want, I, don't, I don't blame people for wanting to move away. War is ugly. But who's going to stay and fight? Who's going to hold this line? Now is not the time for us to retreat, but to dig in, to stand strong, to give it our all. Yes, there may very well be suffering and struggle and loss if you stay. Lost wages, diminished retirement funds, relentless ongoing spiritual attack, perhaps even public embarrassment for standing up for the cause of Christ. But if not us, then who? Right? What if instead of Christians leading the way out of the state... We appealed for more Christians to come into the state, to join us, to bolster our forces. What if more Christians came to see Illinois as a rich and fertile mission field, a place of ministry opportunity, a place where all of us can actually begin to put our faith into action by doing the things that he's called us to do? As Rob said last week, we need more churches here, not less. We need more Christians here, not less. What if instead of fleeing in horror at the thought of living in the abortion capital of the Midwest, we saw that as a massive reason to stay, to stay and fight for the lives of those who cannot fight for themselves, to care for the the young pregnant women who have nowhere else to turn? Look, maybe you disagree, and that's fine. I'm not angry with those who have already left. We're actively supporting a church in Tennessee with a family that left our church a year and a half ago. I'm excited for what God's doing down there. I'm just asking you to look at the situation from a different perspective. To consider God's words to his people in Deuteronomy 7 and to take them seriously. Look, it took 50 years to overturn Roe, right? 50 years of of hard work, endless prayer, unceasing confidence in God's ability to turn back a tide that seemed unstoppable. I'm praying that more and more of us would commit to staying and to taking up the fight with that same degree of intensity and perseverance and commitment and dedication and confidence, not in our abilities, but in God's. Look, God's people, according to his word, are called to be different, chosen, set apart, holy. My prayer is that we would be people who guard that identity closely 
even as we commit to engaging with the world bravely. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are our light and our salvation. Whom on earth, in that case, shall we fear? Lord, we pray that you would be the stronghold of our lives so that we would no longer be afraid of those around us. Lord, hide us in the shelter in our day of trouble. Lord, conceal us under the cover of your tent. Lord, help us to be patient as we wait for you. Help us, Lord, to be strong. Help us to have hearts that take courage in you as we wait for you. In Jesus' name, amen.